The reading this morning is from Daniel chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 90 feet high and 9 feet wide, and set it up on the plain of Jura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, This is what you are commanded to do, O peoples, nations, and men of every language. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, You must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations and men of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You have issued a decree, O king, that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what god will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and his attitude towards them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers that took up Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisers, 
Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, Certainly, O king. He said, Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego came out of the fire and the satraps, prefects, governors and royal advisers crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble for no other God can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in the province of Babylon. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning to you, and especially if you're a newcomer here this morning, uh, welcome. Uh, it's great to have you with us. Uh, if you have a Bible, do turn back to Daniel 3, or it will be on the screen. And when I've found it myself, we'll pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you are indeed with us, your presence is with us, and we pray as we see the faith of uh, these three men who stood up, even though it would cost them their lives. We pray, please, give us that sense of your glory and holiness, that we too would tremble at the thought of denying you this week. Please fill us afresh with joy in our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. Picture the scene. Some 4,000 religious leaders are crammed into Romania's parliament building. It's 1945, and the fledgling communist state has organised a conference of religious leaders. It looks like they're granting religious freedom. In actual fact, they're bringing the church and its ministers under state control, nationalising the church. It's announced that the uh, patron of the Congress is the uh, president of the World Atheist Organisation, Joseph Stalin. The crowd cheers. Over the next few hours, leader after leader stands up to praise the communist regime. Remember, communism being an ideology that longs to wipe out religion. Those leaders, Calvinists, Lutherans, rabbis, mullahs, all praising the new state. They, speak, they spoke out of fear for their jobs, their houses, their stipends. Sat in the crowd was Pastor Richard Vermbrandt and his wife Sabine. She said afterwards, it was as if they'd spat in Christ's face. She turned to her husband, fuming next to her. She said, will you not go and wipe this shame from the face of Christ? Richard knew what would happen. He said, if I speak, dear, you will lose a husband. At once, she replied, words I guess only a few wives in the world could say to their husbands. I don't need a coward. Go and do it. Vermont rose from his seat. 
The uh, communists were amazed. They were so thrilled to see a prominent pastor go up to say their praises. As he got to the microphone, he loudly and boldly proclaimed Christ, that we should worship him and him alone. Pandemonium broke out. They quickly cut off the microphone. The next 14 years, he spent on and off in prison, uh, tortured, solitary confinement. Sabine lost her brave husband. That situation is the situation facing Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego in Daniel 3. It's a situation many of our brothers and sisters around the world today face. It's great, we just prayed for persecuted Christians. It's a matter of the first commandment, isn't it? I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. The question is, will we worship God alone? It's not a question of, will we stop worshipping God? Later in Daniel, there's pressure not to worship God. Here, they can freely worship God. They just have to add the worship of this great idol to it. Likewise, those in communist Romania, you can worship God, but worship Stalin too. Well, it's much more subtle for us. But the question is, will we worship God alone? My prayer is that as we study this chapter... The faith of these men and the vision they have of God will fill us with courage and confidence to do that. Well, three things I want to see this morning. The first is this, total pressure. Do you see this total pressure? In verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar sets up this great statue. It's 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. It's an awesome sight. But it's no statue. It's actually an idol. And he summons all of his officials, the prefects, the governors, the advisors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all of the other provincial officials come to the dedication of the image he'd set up. I trust you noticed the repetition as Luke read that passage so well. Everyone is here. It's total. So verse 3 again, we have it. The satraps, the prefects, the governors, the advisors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And then we have the herald, verse 4, who proclaims loudly, You are commanded to do, O people, nations and men of every language, you see the whole world in effect, that when the band plays, see even the band is totalitarian, not just the band or the orchestra, at the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harps, the pipes, all kinds of music, total pressure. When you hear that band, you must fall down And worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship immediately will be thrown into the blazing furnace. And we see, just as at that Romanian religious congress, all the peoples, verse 7, nations and men of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold. Total compromise. Remember, Babylonia reigned over a huge swathe of the Middle East. Many nations, many languages, all of them bowing before this image. Of course, in our society, the pressure is much more subtle. But we certainly do face pressure not to put God first, to worship other things. There are certain norms, aren't there? That if you don't subscribe to, you'll be ostracized. But if you do subscribe to them, by implication, we deny the lordship of Christ. Just think of the radical secular agenda that seeks to remove any mention of God or Christian morality from the public sphere. If you stand up against that, 
you will be ostracized. I had a teacher who, uh, before his Bible lectures, would, uh, in, in the university, say a prayer. He'd say, the authors of these books wouldn't think we could understand it without God's help, so I'll just say a prayer. Didn't make anybody else pray. One day somebody complained, came under immense pressure. You're a public servant in a public university. How dare you bring your private morality and belief into this classroom? Imagine that's a pressure. Many of you know. Imagine Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego were told, you're governors, you're public officials. You can do what you like in your own homes, but here you go with the rest of society, even if it compromises your beliefs. Perhaps it's a more subtle culture in the office. Ray Kroc, the founder of McDonald's, famously said, I believe in God and then family and then McDonald's. God first, then family, then McDonald's. Except in the office. And then the order's reversed. In the office, it's McDonald's, family, God. God somewhere in a distant third. And the temptation to make career an idol, I guess, is one that many of us know. To, to overwork and neglect family, or to so honour work that even if it means dishonouring God, we go that way. wonder what it is for you. What's your idol that tempts you? We don't have golden statues, but go into any mall and we see a whole range of idols, don't they, begging us, come bow down. Maybe it's the shrine of materialism or the temple of pleasure or beauty. The church of comfort or quiet, of a quiet life. Again, nobody's saying don't worship God. But just keep that to Sunday mornings. And then in the afternoon, come and bow down here. It will be so delightful. I guess a good guide of where our idols might be is what do we dream about in our, mo- our moments of downtime? Where do our minds go in, when we're in neutral? Perhaps it's something we desperately want to avoid. We'll do anything to avoid not fitting in, to being the odd one out. Perhaps comfort is our idol. Or maybe it's something we long for. We just wish we had it. Perhaps everyone around us seems to be buying their own home. Or everyone else seems to be enjoying luxury holidays. And we know really we can't afford it. We know that it would mean cutting our giving back to a bare nothing. Perhaps even taking extra hours that would clash with our small group. But everything around us is egging us on those wonderful pictures of our friends on Instagram. Their perfect holiday. The general culture as we walk past the travel shop and we see, oh, those amazing deals that aren't so amazing. Everything egging us on, saying, you deserve it. Bow the knee here. Worship God, but just come and worship here too. Shouting the other day to someone who spoke about singleness and the pressure our society puts on us not to be alone. And whether that's a pressure to pair up with someone and have sex before marriage, or whether it's a pressure even from family members to just marry someone, anyone, give us grandkids. And so the pressure to marry someone who's not a believer, who we know will tear us away from Jesus slowly but surely. Whatever the pressure, there is that pressure, is there not, to bow down, or to compromise our first allegiance to God. Total pressure. 
And if we take a stand, we can be sure there'll be some who'll be there to make hay, to take advantage. That happens in verse 8, doesn't it? At that time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. Probably they want their jobs. But the result is that Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego are called before Nebuchadnezzar. There's a difference, isn't there, between standing up to the general pressure of a group, to the prevailing winds of culture and feeling a little bit odd, there's a difference to that than standing before the man who terrifies you. This great, powerful man in all his finery. Well, I wonder who that is for you. could be a powerful boss, perhaps a, a lecturer you, you fear or inspires awe in you. But equally, it might be someone you love. It might be a beloved friend. And it's not so much the threats, but it's actually the, the look in their eyes, the unspoken disappointment that makes you long to put them ahead of God. Terribly persuasive. Well, verse 13, Nebuchadnezzar is furious with rage. Amazingly, he gives Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego another chance. He calls in the band again. Bow down and all will be well. But he's clear, verse 15, if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. And then what God will be able to rescue you from my hands? Total pressure. But I wonder if you noticed, in all that repetition, the hint of irony does seem so powerful, doesn't it? And yet did you notice that repeated refrain, the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up? See it in verse 3. In verse 2, verse 3, verse 4, it's just an image that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Nebuchadnezzar himself says in verse 15, will you not worship the image that I have made? At the end of the day, for all its power, all its pomp, all its pressure, it's just a pathetic lump of metal. And I think the irony helps us to see through the things we fear. At the end of the day, they're just made by men. But we come to their response. It's an amazing response, isn't it? This is the second point. Total trust. Total trust. Now, we know how this turns out, don't we? We know the miracle. But we need to remember, for them, they didn't. As they stand before Nebuchadnezzar, I guess they imagine they will die that day. They'll be in the fiery furnace. And yes, God will rescue them at the end of time in the resurrection. But today they die makes their words even more amazing, doesn't it? Verse 16. O Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. And he will rescue us, probably at the end of time. He will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Isn't that an amazing testimony? Not because they are great, but because they know the great God. They know that in despite of appearances, it's not Nebuchadnezzar with all his finery and all his satraps and prefects behind him who rules the world. Despite appearances, it's our God who sits on the throne. And they know that he is the one who reigns. He is the one who's able to save. He is the one who holds the keys to life and death. So they say... We will put him first. He is the one we will obey, both because he's worthy, but also because not honouring him is far 
more terrifying than honoring, n- not honoring Nebuchadnezzar. So they say, even if it costs us everything, even if we're incinerated in your furnace, we will not worship anyone but you. Wonder can we say that? Even if it costs me my job, I will worship God alone. Even if I never marry, I'll worship God alone. Even if it costs me a pay rise, I never buy my own home, never go on a smart holiday, I'll worship him alone. It's a remarkable faith, isn't it? I wonder if you notice the humble faith. They know that God is perfectly able to rescue them, but they don't insist that he does it their way. This isn't a kind of name it and claim it spirituality. They don't say, Nebuchadnezzar, we have faith in God, and so we call down deliverance. They don't say, in the name of Jesus Christ, we bind the flames. They know that God is perfectly able to do that. But they know also that he is God and they are not. And maybe in his great wisdom and authority, his plan is for them to burn there. And if that's the case, so be it. We'll trust him whatever happens. Total trust. Seems very scary, doesn't it? But actually, it's very logical. The Lord Jesus says, Why fear the one who can kill the body, but after that do no more? Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Seems a terrifying thing to displease a man like Nebuchadnezzar, to displease that loved one. But it's far more terrifying to displease a holy God. wonder if you're like me, and somewhere inside you, you think you can displease God with impunity. It's all right, Jesus has forgiven me. doesn't matter. And of course, wonderfully, every sin is forgiven for the believer. But we mustn't be high-handed and sin against him. Well, friends, I wonder where we are in this. I guess many are standing firm. This gives us courage. Well, let's keep going. Perhaps others look ahead and see something coming up. You know you're going to need to take a stand. Well, get ready. Draw courage. But perhaps there are some who feel convicted. You know that you've compromised somewhere, that actually you're not putting God first. You are worshipping other gods. Will you do something about that? This passage all focuses on the external pressures to do that. But I guess actually the reality is for some, we'll be trapped in something internal. There's a sin that's caught us in its web. Will we break free? I guess there are some addicted to some pleasure, to gambling, to pornography, to drinking, whatever it might be. Maybe our anger is out of control. We know in those moments we just can't put him first. Friend, don't hide in shame on your own. Come and talk to some. Come talk to me. Talk to a small group leader. There is forgiveness. There can be freedom. You can stand up. But do you see how it comes? Not by puffing out your chest. Not by drawing courage. Not by trying to be a hero. But by knowing what kind of God we have. Total trust. Not about us. It's about him. The one who is trustworthy. Well, thirdly and finally, we see what kind of God we have here in total salvation. See, God's total salvation. Verse 19, the king is furious. He orders the furnace to be heated up seven times hotter. And then the next verse, he sends his strongest soldiers to bind 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In verse 22 we read, The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the burning furnace and were burned to a cinder. Except they weren't. Nebuchadnezzar leaps up in amazement. Did we not throw three men into the fire? But I see four, and they're unbound, unharmed, and the fourth is like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar later claims this is an angel. Most likely it's an angel of the Lord, an appearance we sometimes see in the Old Testament of the Son of God, the pre-incarnate Christ. The Lord Jesus is there in the fiery furnace. The New Testament tells us, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Richard Vernbrandt, who we mentioned at the beginning, in his solitary confinement, in his torture under those Romanian guards, spoke of the Lord Jesus being near him, nearer than he'd ever been in his own church. The Lord Jesus who promised, I will never leave you or forsake you. And friends, as we're shunned for our stand, as we lose our promotion, as we suffer, the promise is, I am with you. He's in the fiery furnace with us. Verse 26, they're brought out. Those around see that the fire had not harmed their bodies nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Total salvation. Isn't this incredible? This morning, Charlie cooked bacon. The smell of bacon still lingers on me. These guys were in the fiery furnace, and not even a hint of smoke clings to them. It's incredible salvation. But what's more, the kingdom advances. This chapter begins with a blasphemous decree of the king when he orders everyone bow down before this idol. And here it ends, verse 28, with another decree. Not a blasphemous one, one praising God. Verse 28, praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego who has sent his angel and rescues his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own. Isn't that incredible? There's no spin here. He commends them for defying him. They defied my orders, and that was the right thing to do. And then he promotes them. Those schemers who dob them in. It's not those who get the plush jobs. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego are promoted. But of course, this is a token of salvation. It's not a template. It's not saying that anyone who stands up will be rescued in this way. Do you notice that God saves through the fire? He doesn't save from the fire. He saves them through the fire. And sometimes God allows the flames of the fire to hurt us more than others. Ultimately, it points to the Lord Jesus. Jesus prayed, didn't he, of course, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Spare me the cross. But Jesus saved not from the cross, but through the cross, enduring the shame, the humiliation, the pain of being nailed to a tree and dying, bearing the sins of the world. But then, three days later, rising again, 
death has no hold on him. And so too he bids us come and pick up your cross and die. This side of eternity there will be many pains, many trials, many times we'll need to die. But then will come resurrection. This is the kind of God we can follow. The question for the unbeliever, it's wonderful if you're here and wouldn't call yourself a Christian. But the question for you, you remember if you were here last week, that this chapter is written in in the language of the day, the worldwide international language. It's not just for the church. This is a message for the outside world, the unbelieving world. And the question for you is, do you have a God like this? Nebuchadnezzar says, verse 29, no other God can save in this way. I wonder what kind of God you have. Is it a God like Nebuchadnezzar's, made by human hands, put up, looks fine, but ultimately impotent? Or do you have a God who can deal with sickness, who can help when families break down, ultimately who has the power over death? There will be total rescue For the one who puts Jesus first, who keeps that commandment by his grace, there will be total rescue. But sometimes the fire does terrible, terrible damage. I'd like to finish with a story from this book, Killing Fields, Living Fields. You'll know that we've just sent uh, the Dunbars to train in Australia before they go to Cambodia. Cambodia, a country ravaged by the Khmer Rouge, an organisation that systematically wiped out intellectuals, and particularly Christians. This is a quite a harrowing story, but it shows us the total rescue of those who have total trust in a holy God. Let me read this to you and we'll finish. Chaim's entire family, all of them Christians, were rounded up one afternoon. The family spent a sleepless night comforting one another, praying for each other as they lay bound together in the dewy grass beneath a, strand of, a stand of trees. The next morning... The teenage soldiers returned and took them off to the place of their execution. The place was grim indeed and bore many gruesome signs of a place of execution. A sickly smell of death hung in the air. Curious villagers foraging in the shrubs nearby lingered, half-hidden, watching the familiar routine as the family were ordered to dig a large grave for themselves. Then, consenting to Haim's request for a moment to prepare themselves for death, father, mother and children, hands linked, knelt down together around the gaping pit. With loud, crowd, with loud cries to God, Haim began exhorting both the Khmer Rouge and all those looking on from afar to repent and believe the gospel. Then in panic, one of Haim's young sons leapt his feet, bolted into the surrounding bush and disappeared. Haim jumped up and with amazing coolness and authority prevailed upon the Khmer Rouge not to pursue the lad, but to allow him to call the boy back the knots of onlookers peering through the trees, the Khmer Rouge, and the stunned family still kneeling at the graveside, looked on in awe as Haim began calling his son, pleading with him to return and die together with his family. What comparison, my son, he called out, stealing a few more days of life in the wilderness, a fugitive, wretched and alone, to joining your your family here momentarily around this grave, but soon around the throne of God, free forever in paradise. After a few tense minutes, the bushes parted. The lad, weeping, walked slowly back to his place with the kneeling family. Now, 
were ready to go, Hayan told the Khmer Rouge. By this time, there was not a soldier standing there had the heart to raise his hoe to deliver the death blow to those noble heads. Ultimately, the chief of that commune, who'd not witnessed those things, had to do it. But few of those watching doubted that as each of those Christians' bodies toppled silently into an earthen pit which the victims themselves had prepared, their souls soared heavenward to a place prepared by their Lord. Total pressure, total trust, total salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for those like Chaim and his family and others around the world who will give everything not to compromise their worship of you, the one true God. Father, we praise you for Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and their example that inspires us. And we long, Father, in our situation, in so many ways, so much safer, so much easier, and yet still with an immense pressure to compromise. We plead with you, give us such a sense of your worth and glory that the thought of denying you would be an abomination to us. Give us courage this week to know how to live for you. Give us wisdom to know when we need to stand. Father, we pray that you would help us. Be with us as you are with them in the fiery furnace. For your glory's sake and for our good, we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.